Hello, racing world, and welcome to The Chrono Show. The Chrono Show is an endurance industry podcast for event producers, race directors, timers, and a variety of industry insiders. The show focuses on the history of this unique industry, the individuals that created it, the current state of affairs, and where it all goes from here. The show is hosted by Mike Malisi from Chrono Track, that's me by the way, with guests from all across the industry and a few from outside it too. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to the Chrono Show. Five, four, three, two, one. We are Well, hello, Racing World, and thanks for joining. Today's guest is the one and only Steve Bingham Hunk. Steve's a 15-year veteran of the endurance industry as a athlete, a timer, race director, and little things like a father and husband as well. So, Steve, thanks very much for joining the show. <laughs> thanks for having me, Mike. It's great to be here. Yeah, first time. Um, I think you said you've heard a couple of our prior uh, podcasts, right? So you have a, an idea of what to expect for this one? Absolutely. Yep. Got the uh, intro with Troy. He started us off real well. So uh, ho- hope I can live up to that standard. Yeah, he's doing great with the uh, he's outpacing me with the Athlinks podcast. He's uh, he's a content generating machine right now. And uh, it's it's pretty good. He's got a nice variety of guests and they're they're all they're all pretty damn interesting to listen to. I'm a fan. He's got quite the setup in his studio. Maybe that's that that'll kickstart your content. You know, you just got to go. You got to upgrade the studio. So the joke is that I'm attempting to do a podcast and he is now a podcaster. They're two, they're two different things, <laughs> two, two different animals. And you're just in a different uh, part of the cycle, the podcast cycle. You're, you know, you're still in it. <laughs> well, I'm, I think I'm, I think I'm trying to figure out what it will ultimately be. And he has already figured that out and is off and running. So he's, he's doing great with it. So we were joking right before uh, we signed on here. Ironically, the last time you and I saw each other in person, we were both on our way to Las Vegas on the same flight. I think from Denver, we were both on the same flight to Vegas uh, for running USA. That was at the very end of February 2020. And two weeks after that, it all fell apart. So you're, you are, I think you are literally the last customer I would have seen in person prior to the pandemic, um, let's just say changing things for, for all of us. Wow. Yeah. It was, uh, thinking back to that, uh, conference and that trip, uh, just that nobody, there wasn't even a whisper in the room about a pandemic taking down our industry. And, uh, that just goes to show how, uh, impactful and, and sort of blindsided we all were by it. Um, and it's easy in, in retrospect, right, to uh, to think, ah, we should have seen it coming, but we we all just didn't. And I think, uh, yeah, what a what a different world we're in now. That's um, that's probably the best way to say it. Yeah, how quickly things change and how long they can last if you weren't even if you weren't expecting them. So let's kick it off. I'd love it if you gave us a, a first couple minutes um, just on your your background, kind of where you came from. Um, the company that you work for, High Altitude Special Events, being a timer and a race director, and just kind of how how you got to this point here today and in, in the biz, so to speak, and then we'll kick it off from there. 
Sure. You know, I think like a lot of people in the event world, I sort of stumbled upon uh, event management and production uh, right out of school, working in a tech job that realized that uh, sitting in front of a desk all day staring at a computer just wasn't wasn't going to satisfy me or keep me keep me motivated and interested. And uh, so started as a staffing and volunteer coordinator. So, you know, right at the ground floor and coordinating beer garden workers, volunteers, uh, uh, out on the course at our 5k races in Chicago. Um, and you know, quickly discovered while I loved all special events, the endurance, uh, world was really where my heart was. And, and I started to discover running on my own. Um, I had not done it. I think I went to one cross country practice in high school, um, and threw up after a couple miles and never went back and, uh, <laughs> realized that, or at the time in that part of my life, that running was not a solution for me. Later, I realized it was the solution for me um, from both a physical and mental health standpoint. And uh, so it really all fit together like a great big awesome puzzle where, you know, I was uh, found something that I personally got a lot out of and then got to help execute events for people um, that also experience that joy and, and value uh, in endurance um, activity. So, yeah, so just started doing race directing after uh, several years in sort of those support roles and um, then uh, stumbled upon the Salt Lake City Marathon with about 50 days to go. We were hired to uh, race direct that one um, back in 2014, uh, sorry, 2013. And it was, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a whirlwind. Um, we, uh, uh, you know, again, had very little time to, to put that race together. Um, but that was sort of my foray into outside of the Chicago market and really enjoyed traveling, enjoyed being a part of different uh, uh, spaces in the endurance world geographically and realized that timing was something that was really interesting to me. I did like the technical, technical side, uh, of the endurance sports world. And so that's how we added timing to our, our mix. And, and then in March, uh, right after you and I saw each other, I added virtual event production to yeah. my uh, resume. Yeah. It kind of became, so became, the became the primary or at least for the time being, right? It is so, very much the primary. Yeah. What, you said technologist. What What did you go to school for out of curiosity? <laughs> so I went to school for marketing and international business mm -hmm. and uh, started working um, sort of a, in the QA space uh, for a, a Aon Hewitt. Um, mm -hmm. was working on the Siemens team and developing their pension plan, testing it in the background, trying to break the system to find the errors. And uh, that's for some people. And uh not, not for me, but it did, it certainly gave me a nice introduction to data tables and SQL that, you know, I, I think I've always been inclined and, uh, and able to, to, uh, to work around technology. I'm not afraid of it. You know, I, I enjoy learning it and, and getting better at it. Um, so being a timer kind of uh, merged those two career experiences together. And maybe can you walk me through how you how those how those two roles I guess interact in your life, or or maybe it's how you interact with those two roles. But race director and timer are often very different things. You you do a bit of both. Actually, you do a lot of both. I'd, I'd love to know if you see yourself as more one than the other, and I'd love to know just kind of how those two things interact. Those two those two responsibilities that you have. Sure, I think. 
that it, it sort of depends on the event that I'm working on, where <laughs> if I identify myself as the race director or or see myself or view myself uh, as that role. Um, but I would say primarily, you know, I would I would describe myself as a race director. That's probably takes up the majority of my time and 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 thought and, and client base. But what we have discovered over the years is, um, you know, we have clients that needed timing services and some of them need more than others. Some are concerned with very basic data and delivery and had and saw huge savings as a management company already, you know, transporting the equipment there already have staff on site that we could easily pivot and then offer that, that service. Um, so, you know, I think what's really important when that happens though, is, is, you know, it's easy to start merging resources together and that's where you get in trouble where mm-hmm. it's like, Oh my, you know, my course guy, like, Hey, you know how to set up that box, go out and uh, go <laughs> set up that split point. And uh, as much as we possibly can, we try to limit that so that, you know, the timing team is the timing team. The management team is management. And we don't try to cross those unless we're in a real jam. Um, and I think that is what has proved us to be successful. But yeah, I mean, through this, through the year cycle, when we're up in Leadville timing the race series there, I am full-time remote and I wouldn't even want to imagine what um, uh, Tim and Mike and and Sarah and all the, the crew up there um, have to manage on a hundred mile course in the mountains at 10,000 feet. Uh, so maybe sometimes it's circumstantial, whereas like, which one do I want to be working on the most. Uh, <laughs> well, that, that, that was going to be my next question. If I'm allowed to ask is which is your favorite. If you had to pick <laughs> race directing might be the primary, as you said, but is there a preference between the two? You enjoy one or the other more? Yeah. I think that ebbs and flows like with a lot of different things we all do in our careers, but uh, I, I do like the, the limited scope of, of, uh, of timing uh, at times where you can really focus on one task and you're not feeling so much uh, like you're, hairs on fire, nobody knows but you inside. Um, that is, uh, but but then again, that feeling creeps up right before uh, the the award ceremony as a timer, yeah. right? <laughs> so everything seems to be going well, you know, but then it's like, oh, I'm handing off this piece of paper, it's about to be announced. Um, I'm 99% sure it's right, but that 1% gets your heart going. Um, so yeah, I, I, such think, a, I think it depends, yeah. Yeah, it's such a, timing is such a unique variable on on race day you know it's it it i find that i find that if a timer does everything to absolute perfection most race directors would not thank them for that that's what they expected in the first place and it's a service that's really intended to be invisible b2b behind the scenes an invisible service that just kind of happens that's that's what you want if you have if you have a lot of attention on timing it's probably cuz something bad happened but it's also the thing that makes the race a race. If if w- without the time, it's it's an event, uh, and it's a sport, and it's an activity, and it's all kinds of fun, wonderful things. But I mean, the whole reason they're paying that money to show up on that day is to get that specific time. And my God, if you get that wrong, you're you're certainly going to hear about it. So I I think of timers as as unsung heroes in many ways within the industry because they they act as race directing consultants i i find for a lot of race directors even if they're not paid to do that that day there's there's a lot of best practice sharing where the timer is advising hey 
you might want to try this, this, and this. Think about your corrals this way. Here's there's this problem that you might see later. And so there are these really amazing salt of the earth stakeholders in every single race, while at the same time, kind of kind of fading into the wallpaper. They're they're kind of invisible on on site. You know, they're, they're, the most attention they get often is oftentimes is a photographer yelling at them to get out of the way of the picture uh, <laughs> for their finish line picture, when the timer is desperately trying to make sure that the race goes off properly. So it's a it's a it's a really interesting position to be in on on race day for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, that that's, uh, that's funny. It's, um, you know, it's a lot of, uh, you know, I, and I think that's where being a race director helps as a timer is that you're trying to you're thinking through some of those elements of, uh, you know, what what can I do to maximize the performance of our, our timing today? And how do I what do I what challenges do I know the race director is facing right now? Like, there's probably a reason why he has set up the course this way or why she has the runners coming in um, this way, but it's going to present a, B and C problems that maybe they're not thinking about right now. So let's, let's talk through that. And, you know, um, knowing how to approach that in a real gentle and professional way on event day is really important because you just know how many things are going through that person's head. And the last, all they want to know is that everything's fine and it's going to be perfect. Yeah. uh, (laughs) Yeah. Have you, have you found, Let's say in the past five years in particular, have you found that the scope of services you need to provide as a timer has increased, decreased, or stayed the same versus what it used to be? Absolutely increased um, in, in some very surprising ways uh, at times. Um, I think in the past we've done uh, sort of corral uh, management in a way, um, which, which was actually really cool. And we're happy to be part of those activations. For example, in, you know, going back to Leadville, they had a special bike cleaning service, um, that a sponsor was, uh, activating as part of their, uh, sponsor fulfillment. And we were monitoring everybody going in and out and all the bikes going in and out, um, as a security measure, but also as a way to measure engagement, um, and the number of people that were, were, uh, interacting with that, that sponsorship. So I think, um, you know, it's, uh, it's things like that that I think are, are really fun and, and actually add to, you know, our ability to um, upsell services as well as increase our revenue at an event as a timer. So I welcome those, um, you know, but I would say that, and part of it is the nature of the event, because sometimes you're just out there and you're asked to do certain things like bring this back from the from the course or, uh, to, you know, oh, you're heading out on the course like here. Can you take these volunteers? Um, <laughs> you know, I think that that those are the things, though, that where you can be a hero when it, an unexpected hero or an unplanned hero for your client. Um, and if it's, if it's just simply like a ride, you know, why wouldn't you do it? You know, if you're going to save the day in that way. But I think more and more people are asking for technology and ways to um, engage people on social media with results and timing and photos, you know, different, you know, various media that we can offer that present more and more uh, staff, more and more resources um, as a timer on race day. Yeah. You you mentioned revenue a second ago. So do you, do you find that most race directors are simply expecting more and more services to be provided by their timer? Um, as part of their, their their current pricing structure that they have with that timer? Or do you find that they are consolidating various services under that timer and expecting to pay for them? 
That's a good question. I mean, I think and most timers would, would agree that it depends on your client and, and sort of their knowledge of the industry and their and their knowledge of how timing works. Um, I think our approach has always been to be really clear up front about what is included in a base service when we're quoting and then offering the menu of things to upgrade. So if you want to have an announcer screen, it's this fee. And then if you want to um, you know, have an announcer fee at your second finish line, it's another you know fee because that requires an additional person or you know more time. Um, so I think that's that's part of the battle is making sure that everybody's really transparent and from the beginning. So then there's just no way to go down this road of expecting something that we just can't give at that price. Um, but I would say that there's some pressure on on bundling that then ends up eroding our profit um, in a way that makes you think, is this worth it? Yeah. <laughs> um, because at first you think, ah, you know, getting X amount of dollars for that couple of days. Yeah, that's that, that makes a lot of sense. And you started adding in your travel. Uh, and then now all of a sudden they need this extra stuff done. So you got to ask somebody to come along on the trip with you. Um, then, then again, you're getting your margins are getting slimmer and slimmer. And do you do you typically do that via contract that's all spelled out in an agreement of some kind? Or is there another another forum that works well for you to define those things up front? Yeah, I think, um, you know, a, a written contract for us is certainly the way we we go. Um, I know that a, a verbal agreement could could hold up in court, but I don't know if that's safe for everybody. And also it sets out, you know, your expectations, but uh, it lists out all of those things. And then, hey, if, you know, it goes through the scenarios, let's say you want to add three more timing points, well, they're each going to be this fee or, you know, your, your this timing fee covers up to this many athletes. After that, it's covering this dollar amount per athlete. So, you know, again, really, you know, laying it out clearly in that way. I think most people, most of our clients, you know, will be honest with, and I try to, to ask them that, like, what, what is your budget? You know, I'm not, I'm not going to squeak out any more than I, than I, than I should, you know, from this, but I need to know, like, where is your ballpark? And I can tell you what we can offer for that, that fee. Um, and then if you want to start adding stuff on top of that, then we need to talk about, you know, moving your stuff around in your budget to accommodate that. Um, but I would, I would probably say that the industry as a whole probably sees a lot of uh, additional services being expected. Yeah. A lot more, a lot more expected without necessarily uh, expectation of cost to go up as well. So yeah, it's, <laughs> it's tricky to be a timer these days. Right. And, and I yeah. think a lot of them, it's, they're not intentionally trying to uh, squeeze more out of a timer. They just maybe don't understand what that request or that additional benefit is what kind of stress that puts on, uh, or, you know, our resources and our time. So, um, that's another piece where I think education helps. Um, but, uh, that only goes so far, right. And yeah. <laughs> sometimes you just got to draw the line. <laughs> yes. And sometimes you have to draw it multiple times before it sinks in, I think too. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. So tell me about high altitude. So we, we touched on timing a little bit, but high altitude is uh, operates in multiple markets, which I'm very interested in because it's I'm, I'm I'm interested in how you achieve localness from afar um, as a as a race director in particular uh, and marketing all those all the things that go into it. But really, you you guys have a large staff. You span a bunch of different markets, and you have a lot of different services that you offer. Um, I'd love to just get your get your take on kind of how that all came together historically. Cause part of this is about the history of, of the sport and really how it all, how it all functions today, how all the different parts work together. Sure. 
I think, you know, for me personally, a lot of it is it, it organically came about. There wasn't this, uh, you know, epiphany on a hike where I said, I'm going after these 10 markets and that's how I'm going to build my business. It was more about, you know, what's in front of me, you know, doing that as best as I can with that client and then getting that next introduction. Um, but also, you know, but looking for the opportunities in what's in front of you. So knowing, you know, that we had a client that we were supporting just in the Chicago market, um, particularly the American Brain Tumor Association, knowing that they had a national series and that they could really benefit from somebody handling all their logistics and timing for all markets in their series, as opposed to them having to retrain a new team in all, you know, other nine of those markets. Um, and just posing the question and, and with a, without a hard sell, but, uh, Hey, I think this could really help you guys. And, um, and, uh, so that, that, that sort of came about with us moving and branching outside of Chicago. So I spent eight years in the Chicago market, um, not timing, doing, doing race production, parades, festivals, art fairs. When I moved out West after getting involved with the Salt Lake City Marathon and realizing that I could work from anywhere doing what I was doing, that's when things started coming our way. And still today we have two races in Colorado, but the other 30, 40 events are not in Colorado. Mm -hmm. <laughs> just because uh, this person introduces you to, you know, John Korf in New York, who just moved to Sarasota, who's producing a race there. And now all of a sudden we're in Sarasota, Florida. Yeah. Never been there before. Let's get on a plane and, and go uh, plan a race. So your point about how do you be local is is always on my mind in those in those situations. And I have to say, like, it's been really fun for me to you know, I think first you have to love to travel. And if you, cause if you don't like traveling, that's, that's, and if you love going to new places and meeting new people, that's really important. And that really served me well. Every time I would get somewhere, I'd be like, you know, just getting really excited about the market, not just even looking at the race itself, but just what's the, the personality of the city. And let me get to know the people at the city personally and, and let, let them in on my life personally, being vulnerable, you know, to them and sharing the, you know, the struggles that we go through. Um, and and also sharing what what I'm experiencing in other communities and and they appreciate that that feedback in that context. Um, but I think most of it is is being really humble and um, you know respecting how things work there because there's a lot of th different ways you can do something and still have success. There's not one tried or true method of uh, you know just was just on a. a, a a uh, podcast or a um, conference earlier today for the city of Denver. They're just now instituting a special a city special events permit. Mm -hmm. First time ever. I mean, mm -hmm. in some cities you would think that's insane, you know, <laughs> um, like my education was in Chicago where the permits are, are insane and a very long standing uh, system. So, um, you know, just knowing that people can do things differently and it doesn't help to bring up, well, in the, you know, in Minneapolis, they do it this way. So I don't know why you're giving me so much trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, no, one, no one wants to hear that. Um, but what they do want to hear is that you are really trying to understand, uh, you know, what they're going through, what their challenges are. For Sarasota, for example, has a large community of, of folks that are, you know, aging and in their retirement. And so traffic is a big issue. And um, and some of the townhouses that are downtown and that were built being built at that time, we were doing the race. And so, you know, you know, having the right approach um, and really listening, I think, has really has really helped help me. Um, and being there as much as I can is is, is helpful. You got to be there in the market as much as you can. Yeah, it's an it's an interesting topic to me because there's just well, I guess for two reasons. One is there's not that many there's not that many race directors that 
travel outside of their turf, whatever they define their turf as, their city, their state, a region, whatever. Very few do. And the other reason it's interesting to me, I think, is because my career in in this industry started as part of competitor group. I worked for RaceIt, the registration company that was part of competitor group. Whether it was right or wrong, rock and roll, for example, was not necessarily well-liked in some of the local by by other industry insiders by other race directors the local race director let's say there was a sense of i don't want that those guys coming to my town or my city and with all of their power and might big economic impact and a lot of the things that they provided and that's the other reason the whole thing is interesting to me is i'm curious as to how you seem to have been able to make it work dave mcgillivray had similar comments he seems to be able to make it work by embracing the local community without really getting any pushback as a quote unquote outsider where others have not had that, that same success. And so it's interesting to me, is it as simple as just asking the right questions, being vulnerable, spending a lot of time there, or are there other tricks to the trade that really help you expand outside of your local turf? Because a lot of timers and race directors, there's just a lack of supply, even pre COVID there's a lack of supply. And so expanding into another geography might be an option for them, but there's resistance to doing that for, for all the reasons we just mentioned. So I, and I would say to that, that I think it's important to have some connections to people in the industry there that you're, you know, collaborating with. So for example, when we're in Minneapolis doing the American Brain Tumor Association's Breakthrough for Brain Tumors, we're timing, we're managing it, but we also partner with Anderson Race Management, Mary Anderson, who is not timing our race. She's a chronotrack timer, but I bring my own equipment. I do that piece of it, but she helps me manage the course Mm -hmm. um, because we've got, she has that expertise. So therefore I'm going, when I first, you know, now that people in St. Paul know me really well and I'm account a good friend uh, in their permitting department. But at the time, they said that they needed to meet with somebody local and sign the application, somebody that lived in Minneapolis, St. Paul, in order to even consider the application because I lived in Colorado. That was a first for me. And I realized then um, that, uh, you know, to some folks, there is that distrust that you're talking about. And maybe they've been burned before. I know several cities, you know, they've had their event sites left trashed or bills unpaid. Um, we certainly went through that with the Salt Lake City Marathon when we took it over, where the previous uh, owners had not paid their bills. And, um, you know, so I, I understand that distrust, um, you know, from a, from a permitting side of things. But I think for me, it's, it's rare for us to have a market where we're going in cold. I think the only one that we really have that situation is the Colorado Springs Marathon. And there are times where I feel like, man, I just wish I had that one local person or local mm-hmm. person that I could really, you know, um, lean on as a partner. And uh, in all the other communities, I'm either backed by a nonprofit um, or some other support third party group that sort of legitimizes me um, and helps give me some cred. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. and when I was in Utah, I always made made everyone make sure that my parents got married 100 feet away from our start line up at that chapel. They met on campus in, at the U. Um, so helping people understand your local connections, um, I think, also uh, sort of brings down some walls. So you're, you're sourcing as much as you can locally. You're hiring locally as much as you can, in addition to just all the relationship management um, nuances that you that you mentioned earlier. 
Maybe that, you think that's the big difference. Yeah. Okay. I think so too. And there's, and you also got to know who you're talking about because some groups will actually appreciate that extra, like, Oh, you got, you know, different markets that you've been in, or you do this, this certain event and that, that establishes some trust that you, you kind of, you know, the drill of being able to uh, put yourself, you know, in an, in an, in an unfamiliar situation and still be able to come out with a successful event. Um, but others are like, you know, if you haven't, if you weren't born and raised here, I've got an issue. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> it's tough to navigate those two personalities. Yeah. Well, regardless of which of those personalities you're engaging with, do you, would you, if you're, if, if you're moving into foreign territory, do you typically, do you go for humility and say, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm from Colorado, but I'm here doing a local race. I'm, I, I need to learn more about this market. I need to know more about your people. Or do you go for, expertise in the way you position yourself. In other words, hey, listen, I'm really good at this one particular thing. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm here from afar. But I need to backfill a lot of my normal operation with a lot of local support. Does does one angle the other more or less relevant in those scenarios? Yeah, I, that's a really good question. And I think that uh, I don't think I can give you a real binary answer. Um, I'm, I'm going to sit. I'm going to say maybe there's a, a third option where there's not necessarily the sell or a complete humility, but there's more of a, you know, here's what I have done personally and share my experiences. Like, you know, I, I do this 10 city thing for the brain tumor association. I time the Leadville race. I'm the Salt Lake City Marathon race director. And so I, I've, I've done all the, had all these experience in my career and I'm, and I'm, you know, so happy to have this new opportunity here, but I'm not going to pretend that I know the, uh, the intricacies, the nuances of hosting an event here. And so I really, I want you to know that I've got the logistics covered that, op that would apply anywhere. And, and I will ensure that we take care of your community and your event space correctly, but I will not pretend to know that I'm an expert on mm -hmm. you know, what you guys, what you guys need out of me. So I want to get, I want to understand that. So I guess it's a humility approach, but I also really want to make sure people understand that like I, I am, you know, somebody with expertise. I am somebody that can walk into any situation if I had to and sort of um, make things happen. Um, but I don't think it ever goes over well. Uh, <laughs> with uh the strong arm you know uh you know i know more uh, approach i can't see that ever working and i get complimented on that from police departments and cities that say you know it's so fun to go to your public safety meetings because you're not cramming things down our throat you're not demanding that the street gets closed or we're or you're pulling the race out uh that, that's one strategy it's never served me well um so yeah Let's talk about one you know really well, which is Salt Lake. I have a I have a bunch of Salt Lake questions, and um, um, I'd be I'd be appreciative for anything that you're you're willing to answer. Maybe not everything. Um, my first question: Salt Salt Lake is a relatively young marathon, right? Founded in two thousand two, two thousand four, something like that. Three, two thousand three. Yeah close. So why, when I was, um, in some of the earlier episodes, we focused a lot on the emergence of the space in the 1970s, the first real running boom in the 1970s. And we talked a lot about this wave of mega marquee events that were all born in the seventies. So Cooper river bridge run, shamrock marathon, Chicago, uh, Bloomsday on and on and on and on big, big marquee, meaningful events that, you know, 40, 50, 60 years later, 
They're still here, still kicking, still marquee, still badass events. And after that initial wave in the 70s, really throughout the 80s and into the 90s, it was like the map got filled in. Any blank spot on the map, every major metro and then minor metro area, everybody all of a sudden had to have um, a marathon you know, and, and a triathlon, let's say. It's like, it was like everybody putting their flag in the ground that we have that too. What is unique about Salt Lake that it took uh, so long for them to come around and establish a major marquee event in that major marquee area? I think there's a few things that were going on. Uh, first of all, I think there is the nature of the state in that there is so much to do recreationally and outdoor in all seasons that in a community where it's, uh, you know, certainly maybe people are getting outside like in the Midwest, but they don't have these incredible, you know, hiking and ski uh, destinations that there's like more of a need and a craving to like create that, um, you know, and then obviously I think just in a major, you know, urban area or, or a major city, you've got just enough people, there's enough demand to, to generate that. Salt Lake is obviously a smaller city, you know, it's one of the uh, smaller major cities uh, as a capital and, and Utah in general um, just has less geography you can live in actually. <laughs> so, you know, it's a, it's a less populous state. Um, but actually there's also uh, an event that was already happening since um, the late seventies called the Desert News Marathon. So mm -hmm. that was sort of considered, I think, Salt Lake's marathon. Um, but it was sort of a hybrid of a Canyon and a, um, downtown urban race. So you started mm -hmm. up high, you ran down the canyon and you ended in the city during pioneer days, which is the celebration of the founding of, of Salt Lake in Utah. So um, it was very much tied to the Mormon church, which as you mm -hmm. know, has a huge influence in the state. And, uh, you know, so I, without knowing and not being in that city at the time that was generated or prior to it, or, or, or that event was started, I can't say exactly what it was going through people's heads, but those, I think those factors all had something to do with it. Um, you'll also note that the other major, um, so St. George is another major marathon and known throughout the world. Uh, they had started in the seventies as well. And then, but Ogden, which is one of the top marathons in the world and, and, and sort of a sister race to us. Now we've been doing some great partnerships with them. Um, they, they got started around the same time as us. So, um, so there was definitely this movement, um, around, you know, the early to mid two thousands where it started exploding. Um, and I, that race came about through divine racing. So he's, he started the Salt Lake city marathon and he, at that time he owned LA, um, and I think Georgia. So it was part of his whole divine network until, it, 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 uh, went south and, yeah. and, uh, and then started getting parceled out, you know, to various groups. Yeah. So, yeah. okay. So you're, you're 15 years in the industry. You obviously know a lot of other, other races, regardless of whether or not you're directly involved with them. Do you have any, do you have a sense of why those initial marquee uh, races started back in the seventies? I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated about the longevity that they've been able to, achieve they're, that they're still awesome you know 50 years later it can't just be their geography it can't just be something experiential it can't just be that they were there first because so much more came after them that theoretically could unseat it and new blood would come in and and kill off the older races but that hasn't happened they're they're more powerful and more prestigious than ever 
What do you think are the characteristics of of those types of races or any really long-term race that just keeps people coming back and keeps them marquee after they achieve that that status at some point? <laughs> that's a that's a big question because if you know the answer to that, then you should be able to create the next one, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm kind of I'm kind of hoping that you'll give me the secret sauce, and then that's my next that's my next career. <laughs> Jeez, I don't. I mean, it's sort of like you know how how do so many other you know companies brands build themselves into these you know must have um, products or, or experiences or services, and I think you know. Part of it is the the sort of endearment and the connection that you you have with the community that it's in, you know, so that it is not just, you know, a standalone event, but it's working with the local, you know, nonprofits and groups, whatever, you know, they're benefiting um, or what teams they're building, charity um you know, partnerships and programs, like, for example, you mentioned Chicago, you know, walking through their charity village, like many other large marathons have is watching the number of nonprofits raising money and, and doing all that is incredible. And so you're, 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 I feel like it's sort of this, you're touching so many different levels and so many, you know, paths or veins of the community that at some point it becomes like, what is that community without that event? Yeah. Um, and so, and that takes a lot of time. And it, and it also takes, you know, I know it's not always being first, but, you know, when you become big first, you know, it is, you know, you have to do some things wrong to, to get knocked off that, that, that pedestal. Cause I think runners, they have these life changing experiences in a finish line. You know, you, every time you see somebody cross, there's a story there and it's, and some, and most of the time, if not all the time, it's something pretty miraculous and, you know, being able to be a consistent event over the years and people continue to connect to that. And then they talk to younger people who are up, up and coming and starting to run and go to do this race. Cause I had my, you know, a lifetime epiphany when they <laughs> crossed that finish line. Um, I, I think those are some, some of the reasons, um, yeah. I'm not giving you the secret sauce, but I'm giving you my thoughts. I think. Well, see, see, my theory is, I think you actually, I think you actually did. I, I think the answer is there's really no, there's really no direct answer. Like the thing that those races, I'm answering my own question. What I think those races achieved, it doesn't matter if they're big or small, is they cross two thresholds. They become endemic to the local city, and they become endemic to the local community, like their their tribe. They, they have huge numbers of repeat athletes that every year go back to do Boston, go back to do Cooper River Bridge Run, go back to do Bloomsday, whatever. It just it, – it, it feels like a local unique holiday in a lot of those markets. And there's people that have run that race you know, two times, 27 times, 32 times. And so I, I don't know – I don't know how to direct anyone as to where that threshold is or what happens to get to that threshold. But it's there – somewhere where once you reach it that that the municipality the city the county whatever the race starts to feel like theirs it's mm. they would be disappointed if it didn't happen it's not just allowed to proceed they specifically want it and it's it, right. that that weekend you know the the cops count on it for the overtime the sanitation department needs it for the overtime um the hotel beds are filled it's just it just becomes part of the dna of the community and then it seems to me that beneath that, the thing that really enables that to happen is I think of all the races just have so much churn, so much turnover of trying to replace last year's athletes with this year's athletes, where if 
47% of last year's athletes come back, there's only 53% to, to replace, right? And so the, the more that that tribe becomes endeared to the event and it's, it's, it's the same enough that if they feel nostalgia for the event and it's different enough that it's worth coming back to every year to see what's different. Mm-hmm. It's a really long winded way. That was like 12 sentences I just rattled off, but that it seems like those, those two thresholds and becoming endemic to the, the municipality and becoming endemic to the local community. I, I think really that's the answer but there's no way to just say, well, there's no formula to follow to achieve that. You just have to constant. It's like being a chef. You just have to constantly tinker with it until you find the right recipe. And I, I think that's right. why it's so hard. Your, your answer, I think, I think we actually said the same thing, but we both stumbled with it because there is no finite answer. It's like a, it's like a, it's more like a mission statement that you're trying to accomplish, not a specific thing you're trying to to do. Absolutely. And I think, yeah. you know, that's it's funny you mentioned the cops uh, the like and depend on the overtime. And we're actually the only event, you know, race or festival or concert wise in Salt Lake City that the police are not allowed to take off. So <laughs> like Christmas and Salt Lake City Marathon yeah. Day, they're not allowed to take off. Um, but uh, yeah, it was when you get to that level, there's, you know, that then it's talked about at meetings, you know, within the city agencies, within the community uh, groups. And that all of those things just trickle out into it being just, you know, a must have piece of the community, a, a, a you know, a, just a critical piece of its DNA. Yeah, so I, 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 agree, I agree with that. Um, and so I think what, to your other point was you just got to do the next right thing and surround yourself by the best people because you don't there is no magic formula. But if you know you've got good people and you're making good, sound moral decisions and you're delivering a really great athlete experience and putting that top then all the details just should fall together. Not yeah. perfectly every time. Yeah. But. I have a question about that. So regarding selecting the right people, I'm curious to know because of the, how disparate a lot of your races are in multiple geographies all over the place, a lot of flights involved. If you think of, let's say that a typical, a typical race organization is a handful of people that work for probably a racing company of some kind. And then you normally have like your, <clears throat> excuse me, your, your committee, right? Uh, uh, volunteers or minimally paid individuals, but probably volunteers that tend to be there every single year. How, how do you, how do you function as a, a, a regional slash national racing organization? Do you have dozens of committees? Do you tend to do more in-house uh, in lieu of a committee or how, how does that, how does that function when you're operating across multiple state lines? Sure. Yeah. So I think uh, Salt Lake would be a good example, speaking of a commitment of, or a committee approach uh, where we do uh, pull from our volunteer base and create of a committee about 20 to 30 people. We meet every month. We have holiday parties. We do fun things, social things together. Um, and honestly, most of the, my time is just spent keeping them and engaged and, and interested um, mm-hmm. more so than even some of the planning. Uh, which sounds insane, but, um, and, and of course they're all helping with the planning, but what I want is those warriors that would, you know, that wouldn't miss it for the world. Um, and who really, you know, it becomes part of their personality that they are the start line manager at the Salt Lake mm-hmm. City Marathon. And they're proud to tell people in their community about that. So that's how I achieve it in Salt Lake because I'm not there and that, and it is such a large race for us. Um, 
in other groups with uh, the American Brain Tumor Association, which has the 10, 10 markets in their series, they do have local committees there that are are going after sponsors that are um, collecting donations, uh, you know, building the volunteer base. So I think you the committee approach is is really strong. But then for me, from a from a staffing point, where I've got to have people that I'm paying that are committed and responsible and answer to a paycheck, which is different than a volunteer, right? Um, as I I've been able to just in again organically and meeting through clients or. Um, you know, friends, uh, finding those, the best of the best around the country and bringing them, um, mm-hmm. where I need them. Not all the time. There's, you know, you got to look at your budget, right. To see where it happens. But when, um, but when you have a large race, you want the best that you have that, you know, you can trust, um, and that represent the kind of team that you have worked to, you know, for me, it's always about positivity. You know, we never sit in the problem. We, we identify what's going on, the challenge, and then immediately work on the solution. And if you've, you know, so we spend a lot of time at our wrap ups the morning after when everyone is dead, you know, barely, barely breathing, um, can and talk about what went well. Because I think that goes a long way. And I, we all forget that we talk about everything that goes poorly, because yeah. those are the things we can fix. And there's nothing wrong with that. But um, you know, having people that, you know, when you establish that culture of like, we just don't, we don't, we don't ignore the bad stuff, but we don't, that's not our focus. Our focus is, you know, the next thing we can do together as a group. Um, so yeah, so using weekend warriors, using the committees, um, and, you know, uh, sacrificing a lot in your life. <laughs> a lot of event people yeah. do, uh, knowing that it's, uh, this is an industry not for the nine to five type person. This is a this is a this is a job for the people that really love what they do and and uh, and and really and it becomes part of who they are. It's not a job. It's 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 uh, it's not every it's not it's not everything you are, but it's a it's a big part of me. It's so cliche to say if you love what you do, you'll never work again. But it's also so it's so uniquely true in this this particular space. There's not very many people that are here to get rich. A couple have, a couple have many, many hope, many, many hope to, I I guess, but you know, not many leave either. A lot of them stick it out for the long haul because it's just, it's, it's hard. It's challenging for sure, but it's, it is a, um, it's a good way to spend your work day. It's It's a wonderful product to give to the world is the way that, the way that I always describe it. Absolutely. I think it's a great mix of uh, things you can do as a professional. You know, you're often looking at, uh, you know, major budget, you know, financial decisions, along with, you know, conceptualizing an event and building its brand. But then you're also in the back of the truck, you know, and you're sweeping it out after a really great event. And that that the feels you get from that is unmatched, uh, I think, in a lot of jobs is that 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 sense of accomplishment. Um you walk in, you know, and 24 hours later, it's all over and, you know, thousands of life moments, hundreds of thousands of dollars raised for charity. I mean, that stuff is like a drug. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it will keep you coming back despite the the no sleep and <laughs> and uh, all the other uh, uh, impacts it has on our families. Yeah. The, the, the first time I ever volunteered at a race, <clears throat> it was, um, it was blowing like 35 knots that morning. So it was, I was on the start line crew that day. And I'll, the, the reason for this story is what you were just saying, just the uniqueness and how wonderful the, the space is. And it always reminds me of this. So 
three o'clock in the morning, that morning, I was standing in the lobby of a hotel and I was listening to the race director, who's a personal friend of mine. The race director was screaming at the local weatherman to do something about the wind because it was ruining the race, which I just thought was utterly ridiculous, but also hysterical. I was like, what, what is this? And I had never volunteered at a race before. I'd never seen <laughs> behind the scenes. And then we wrestled start arches and finish arches and the wind was just blasting apart every single thing we put together. And I remember thinking, this is the worst day of my entire life. I've never been this cold before. This is miserable. It's pointless. Everything we're doing is immediately destroyed. Then the wind died down right at sunrise. And then I saw the start, you know, everybody cheering, everybody just pure, pure joy. I thought that was great. Worked all across the, the course. I must've walked 10 miles that day back and forth between different points on the course. And then I got to experience the finish line for the first time as a member of the crew. And just the number of, I mean, medical stuff that happened that I thought was you know scary, but fascinating um, announcers and how they operate, just armies of volunteers and how wonderful those volunteers were to the athletes. And then those athletes coming across the finish line and sobbing or throwing their arms up in joy or praising God or doing doing whatever their thing is when they cross a finish line and all that crap together in one day I just thought this is such a a really weird but wonderful thing that that happens that was before I was even in the industry and a couple couple years later I'm 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 here and I'm still fascinated by all those same things no matter how many times I see them I I still like being part of it every single time yeah I, yeah. I always I what I love the most about uh, race day is I I think that people show up as their best selves at that moment. They are we're, we all we all have different moments where we're most proud of ourselves and ones where maybe we're not as proud um, ones where we succeed, ones that we, uh, you know, fall down on. Um, but you know, <laughs> whoever you are, you're, you're going to be, you're going to be that best version that you're presenting to the world at a race. Yeah. Um, you know, you've, you've trained, you do, you're, you're taking care of your body, you're raising money for charity, you're looking out for your fellow athletes. Um, and I, I just love that energy and I, it's, it's really soul fulfilling, you know, to be part of the management and production of all of that. Um, and uh, certainly wonderful just to be a witness to, you know, whether you're the race director or the volunteer um, or a family member. Well, you, and you in particular, I mean, you and Michael have a unique lens to look through for some of this because of the the diversity and the types of events that you guys um, help execute. So Salt Lake, you know, s- small city, I guess, but still major metro road race style event. But then the uh, complete other end of the spectrum, you talked about timing Leadville, which for anyone who's never been to or seen Leadville, it, it's a little hard to describe what Leadville is as a as a place. So the, the town itself is literally a, a legacy cowboy mining town, you know, going back to the 1700s. It looks like Aspen. If you left it alone for a hundred years, that's what Leadville looks like. The you know, a saloon and a couple old hotels and a few restaurants and just this spectacular 360 degree view of those mountains. The town is at 10,500, 10,200, something like that. And then, so for you, for part of your operation, you are like the, 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 the let's, say, let's say for the Leadville 100 mountain bike race, top of Columbine Pass is above 12,000 feet. And you're up there at the turnaround point at the top of Columbine after people climb those mountains. What's, what's it 
what's it like operationally to to work that race versus let's say a norm a quote unquote normal race like like a salt lake or a, a road race of any kind what's what's it like for you it is it, it presents a lot of challenges and i you know it makes the end of it all the more sweeter um but there's also this mentality um, and you kind of get this in rural communities and mountain communities where people are in it to help each other because we have to. We're sort of mm -hmm. isolated geographically and there's we're sort of cut off from resources. Uh, you know, there's there's real one major road into Leadville. And if there's an accident or something that's down on it, like Safeway's not getting the eggs, yeah. you know, or so, yeah. you know, the town just goes without eggs. <laughs> that's probably an extreme example. But um, I we did have situations where the Internet went down, like for the entire city. And, you know, you just you can't resolve those things as quickly as you can in a major area. So for us, you know, our journey is always, um, you know, bringing in people local people from Colorado, but Leadville is a pretty small town. And it's and in terms of people with knowledge of technical skills, um, certainly with any timing skills, you're really bringing them <laughs> from other places. So getting everybody together, getting making sure you're going out to very remote locations that have no cell signals. So no one's using their GPS to get there. You've got written instructions to get to the split point. And, and it's like, you see that rock next to this, you know, that's where you're supposed to be. <laughs> um, and uh, internet is always an issue. Luckily, you know, Chronotrax uh, equipment designed to be able to operate with a very low uh, uh, bandwidth. But uh, at times we have nothing. So we've worked, we've had to set up satellite dishes uh, a couple miles away and beam a signal down into an aid station. Um, we've gone through many iterations of, of crazy dangerous hikes to try and uh, plant certain equipment to help relay signals that have failed. Then, and, and we learn uh, that's not the case, but um, going up treacherous roads and making sure, you know, you uh, helping people whose trucks break down that are part of the crews supporting other riders. I mean, it's, everyone is there to help each other. And, uh, and that's, that is, I think, why people love the event so much is uh, it is so much more than just the challenge. It's the community that the event builds. Yeah. I think in Leadville, too, there's whether it's intentional, whether it was intentionally created or not, you have a sense of maybe it's I don't know if it's I don't know if it's a combination of the difficulty of the race and the just the views, how spectacularly beautiful it is. But you just have a you have a sense the whole time you're there that it's special. It just feels special. It doesn't feel fancy. It doesn't feel, um, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't feel marquee in the, in the way that like a gigantic race feels. It's more like, it's almost kind of the opposite. You feel like you're in the inner circle that like of adventurers or something that you're, that you're partaking in, in Leadville, or even just there spectating Leadville. It's just, it's just different. I've never been to another race like it. It has this intimate feel, like you said, it's and, and part of that is your leadership is setting that tone in culture. And they, you know, the founders, um, Ken and Mary Lee, they always refer to the to everyone as family. Mm -hmm. And they do that from the first day they meet you. I mean, it, packet pickup is an awesome experience at Leadville because you can just see these people being welcomed into a family they didn't know they needed or, or, or were, were even invited to. And suddenly mm -hmm. here you are. Um, I certainly felt that my first time. Um, up there and um, going to the athlete meeting and hearing the inspiring words of you, you can do more than you think you can, you know, dig deep. I mean, those things have so much uh, 
relevance to your entire life, not just a, an endurance event experience. Yeah. And I, I still get chills during those. And I'm sitting there thinking like, oh man, we got to get on the course. And I'm running through a million things in my head. But I pause during that, that initial um, uh, thing for him because I'm like, this is my like pep talk for the year. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, I need this to make sure I get through to, to the Leadville season next summer. Yeah, there's something special about that race director Ken too in his denim jacket, cowboy hat, denim jeans, boots, and he fires a shotgun to to kick off the race. It's just like this is this is cool. This is different. I, I like this one. Right. And he's been in it. You know, obviously he's done it many times. Yeah. But I remember the first time I met him, um, I was up at Mosquito Pass for the, the the trail marathon, heavy half, the first one in the series of the summer. And he's the first guy up there bringing something up to me. And, uh, you know, it just just disheveled just in, in, in such a state. But he sat there and hugged almost every single person that made it up there for the turnaround. Mm -hmm. I mean, how many founders do you see doing that now? Um, it's it's a really special experience. Yeah. Well, he's as much a Leadville ambassador, I think, as he is a, uh, a race director. He's a little bit of little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. Legend up there. Yeah, he is. So I have two. I have two. Um, two. Two. Two questions that are somewhat tied together. As the business grew, whether it's the timing side of the business race directing or the combination of the two. I have I have two questions for you. One is I'd love to know if you found a pivotal moment of some kind where some something clicked in the positive and the business took off from there. You got more race directing gigs, more timing gigs, you um had more ancillary revenue from the same what it doesn't matter what it is, but I'd love to know something that whether it was by design or by accident, something clicked and you had a, a positive result. And then I'd like to know the opposite too. I always like to ask everyone if you have what I would call a favorite failure, something that you tried and it bombed or you thought was going to work and it didn't, or it was a total surprise. But I, I, generally people have something that they actually, a failure that they actually look back on very, very fondly. Do you mind answering those two questions for me? Sure. The good and the bad? Yeah. So the good, I think for me, it really clicked when I, I left the Chicago market um, and moved out west um, and sort of was a little bit more in my element in terms of where I felt comfortable. You know, being in the mountains, I suddenly started to feel a little more comfortable in my skin. Um, but then right around that same time as I met, you know, what I would count as as one of my you know, major mentors, um, that was my cheerleader. And having that person that you feel confident that you can go and bounce ideas off or who always has your back, who's always looking out for you. And, um, but, but also is, can, takes the time to get to know the good and the bad of you and, and can, and can coach you along, you know, to, to make up for the, the deficiencies, uh, was really, um, rewarding. So I think having, having that resource, you know, so if I was somebody getting new to all this, I would be like, you know, be looking for that person, you know, who you, who you feel like can be a really strong resource. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I want to say that, cause at that time, sort of the combination of all those things suddenly gave me the sort of confidence to go after things that I felt weren't possible. Um, so going after like a national series where I hadn't operated in a lot of markets yet. Um, and, uh, and that, and that just, I think 
spiraled from there. And again, you know, I think just always being open and saying yes before you say no, like always figuring out a way to say yes to a new opportunity mm-hmm. versus, oh, that's going to be too much or that's too crazy of a weekend. Um, you know, I think I sort of that flipped the switch for me. Yeah. Um, favorite failure. <laughs> Jeez. Favorite failure. That one's a harder one for me. Um, Cause there's a lot of failures that are not my favorite. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and gosh. I'll give you mine. I'll give you mine. And I'll okay. give you a moment. I'll give you a moment to think if that helps. Mine's actually, mine's very personal for me. It's actually at Leadville, which is why I keep laughing about Leadville. <laughs> okay. So I, I attempted Leadville stage race a couple of years ago. I made it through one and two. And I completely, I completely bonked for a whole variety of reasons, which are actually on Troy's podcast. He pulled all that out of me. Um, and uh, I had a, my experience at Leadville was, was failure. I, I DNF'd for the first time ever. And it was the reason I say it was my favorite failure. It was, it was not good. Uh, it was heartbreaking for me. I was, I was incredibly disappointed um, and embarrassed and all kinds of things, but it was, it was an experience for me as a person, not, not really as an athlete, but as a person where I thought I had done everything right to prepare for the thing I was going into. And I was completely wrong. I could not have been more wrong. I did a lot of things right, but so much wrong that I didn't actually recognize until I was experiencing and especially afterwards after thinking about it for about two years. And so for me, it was a, a, just a meaningful life lesson of like, prepare, prepare, prepare. Yep, that's great. But I just had, to, I had not done enough diligence and I had not done enough um, seeking of advice from those who had more expertise than I did. And I, I would credit that as the reason for the failure, which I call it my favorite failure because was, I was just so shocked by the failure. I was so wrong. Uh, in my performance and what I thought I had done to prepare for it, that I I just felt like it changed my perspective on things, on 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 business and just life. And whenever you think you got it all figured out, you probably don't. And it might be worth you know vetting and revetting and re revetting what you think your solution is. And it it definitely changed things for for me. So anyway, that that one happens to be mine. But yeah, no that 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 little uh, pause helped shake some things loose. Actually, a big one. It'll be it'll be a multi-level. Uh, <laughs> no, so brace yourself. Uh, no, I, I for me, I would say, you know, when I started out in the events uh, industry, I was on this trajectory going up uh, in terms of just getting a lot of different experience with events, moving up in my company into leadership positions where I was the director of events and I was having about seven event managers reporting to me and um, also trying to manage 20 events uh, at the same time, which Mm -hmm. was not smart. Um, And I, and I did turn to um, unhealthy habits where, you know, I, I started to abuse substances and then had to end up going to rehab. And my, my boss, um, who is still my boss, the CEO of our company, uh, supported me and, and sent me away uh, to Minneapolis to get that help that I needed. Uh, I was demoted and I felt like a complete failure because, you know, you grow up with a father who is a high level executive in a Fortune 100 company and you think you're supposed to have all the gifts that were given to you and be perfect and be better. And here I was <laughs> fresh out of rehab with a demotion. Mm-hmm. And I thought this is, uh, you know, 
this is over for me. Um, but what happened instead was that I was given the time and the chance to slow down um, and and sort of get put put myself back together and then find healthier ways to to deal with the stress of of my job and, and just life in general. And that's when I discovered running um, that I referenced to earlier. And that's so that's another reason why my job and just endurance activity in general is so you know important to me is that it it was the thing that helped me push into that new um, uh, realm, you know, and at that that time, and I look back on that, you know, with endearment, just to think like, if I hadn't had that failure, I could be, I, you know, I wouldn't be like parenting three children and doing all the, th the things that that never seemed possible at that time. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that. Um, I appreciate the the candor and the vulnerability there in sharing that story. Congratulations, by the way, on your success ever since then. So it sounds like maybe very different, very different than my failure, but it sounds like the failure spurred you on to much greater things. So foster parent to three children, successful business across multiple state lines, completely different product suites with race directing and timing and whatnot. So pretty, pretty damn good, Steve. Congratulations on that. Thanks. Yeah. But like you yeah. said, you know, we're not all here uh, looking to be uh, multimillionaire ballers or anything like that. I, uh, you know, we're, you know, I think what we've developed is just a comfortable uh, life where we get to do, you know, a job that really is, is, is fulfilling um, in a way that, you know, I feel really grateful for, grateful for. Well, I have um, my, my final question is I'd love to just ask you, it's a simple positive one, but I'd love to ask you for a favorite racing moment or maybe a defining racing moment if there if there is one for you in the in the business. Like you said, it's not a place to get rich for most of us. It's a, it's a place to experience something wonderful and have a, a wonderful product that you bring to the world. Um, I'll give you mine really quick. So a couple of years ago when Shalane uh, Flanagan won New York, Chrono Track sends an enormous crew to to New York every year, huge, there's dozens and dozens of us. And um, with my position at Chrono Track, most of my responsibility is for um, paying for people's dinner and maybe carrying some controllers back and forth when uh, when when nobody else is available to do it. I've I'm utterly useless at at New York. So I was assigned to the uh, finish line, and after about two minutes, the rest of my team that I was there with uh, basically said, "Why don't you go stand over there? We'll take care of this part." So I was I was kicked out by my own my own team, and so out of just boredom, waiting for the finishers to come through at New York, I um I I climbed up onto the top of the uh, the platform where the cameraman had his camera on a boom to finish the the elites as they came through to to, to finish the race. And so I was just standing up there and the camera, there was a cameraman up there who said, if you move at all, you're going to shake the camera so you can stay here, but don't move. And I said, okay, so I'm just sitting there on the platform, nothing to do. And for the first time in my entire life, I heard a, a genuine USA chant coming from the grandstands that they set up at the finish line for New York, you know, USA, USA on and on and on. I was like, oh, this is cool. I've never, I've never been in a, at a live USA chant before. I've only seen it in, in movies or on TV. And sure enough, Shalane came around the corner right then. She was maybe six feet away from me because I was on that um, uh, platform for, for the camera. And so for just this amazing 
moment in racing and for America and at New York and all that kind of stuff. I was, I felt like I was with her. I literally was with her at the finish line, six, six feet away from her. I could have spit on her if I wanted to. She was so close to me. And uh, I just thought, wow, this is so such a special thing to have been here for. It kind of instantly became my my favorite racing moment. So that one's mine. Anything that sticks out for you as a particular? Yeah, favorite? yeah, I do. Yeah, well, that that's that's a great story, and what what an amazing uh, opportunity you had to to be there for that. So awesome. Great. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the year that. And uh, this was a turning point for for the Salt Lake City Marathon. I, you know, mentioned how uh, the the race under previous ownership prior to my involvement had not paid the bill. So we worked through all of that. But in my second year as race director, um, I was sitting in the hotel um, with. Uh, I think it was the the hotel manager, community liaison, talking about the meeting rooms we'd need for when the staff gets into town. And all of a sudden on the TV, we see the Boston Marathon bombing. It was the first report. And um, our race was in, you know, four days. Uh, so immediately it thrust us into, you know, sort of this um, processing the tragedy and, and mourning um, the loss and then trying to think, can we actually do this? Um, you know, we're not New York, <laughs> we're not uh, LA, we're not these huge events that, um, you know, but we are the next one in North America after this. Mm -hmm. So um, it immediately put us into a planning mode that we always have planned for, you know, certain disasters and, and medical emergencies and things like that. But then we had our, our public safety meeting the next morning and all of a sudden the FBI is sitting in the room and Homeland Security uh, had never had them join us before. And uh, here I am trying to convince them that we're ready to handle, you know, if someone's going to do a copycat or this is a series attack. I mean, there were all kinds of questions and unknowns at that time. And um, there were many people that um, had had been at Boston and who came who were from Utah and were going to run our race that weekend. And so mine is also a finish line story was seeing those. I think there were about 14 of them, you know, linking arms and crossing our finish line in sleet and rain. And just we had the worst weather that day. I mean, the worst. And uh, them powering through and finishing, we had this huge banner set up and everyone was signing after they finished the Salt Lake to give their, you know, their positive messages to Boston. We sent it to them. They hung it in their conference room after afterwards. But that was a real, it was a point for us where everyone in Salt Lake just did not like the marathon. We had a horrible reputation, even though none of us had been involved in the previous administration. But out of that tragedy, you know, we and it wasn't like we made this perfect plan in four days to honor people in Boston. It just happened that way because we had good people running our race. Um, and uh, suddenly, you know, people liked us again. <laughs> and 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 there was this rallying, you know, around athletes, you know, um, out of that, you know, attack on our on our industry and attack on our our, our athletes. So that was a really special moment for me. I felt like, you know, if I didn't know the power of, of endurance races and training and special events before, like it, it it's, it, it's impossible to, to, to not know it now. Um, so 
So that what was a, mine. Yeah, what a great story. And I I think that's a perfect place to end, Steve, because the, the we didn't talk about COVID much other than at the very, very beginning. Um, and a lot of the questions being asked right now are, you know, will racing come back? How will it come back? And whether it's 9-11 or the Boston bombing, or in this case, COVID, that those people coming across the finish line locked arm in arm is just, I think, the perfect little glimmer of hope for it's it's coming back. It's coming back really strong. And the nature of it is so viscerally special to the people participating in those races that it doesn't matter if it's a bomb or an illness, they they are going to come back and they're they're going to come back strong. So I, I really appreciate that story. It's a it's a great place to finish. Yeah. All right. So thank you for doing that. Um, I ask at the end of all of these, is there anybody that you would recommend we speak to next with the the spirit of this podcast kind of being the history of it, but also current affairs? Any Anybody else that you think is a unsung hero that we should speak to as well? Ooh. Well, yeah. I mean, so there's lots of people that I feel like are important. Um, you know, my mentor that I was referring to earlier was uh, John Korf, who started the New York City Triathlon and, you know, not so much in the space anymore, but certainly was a big part of the the history of the triathlon and, mm-hmm. and sort of building that industry. Um, you know, I have a lot of respect for Mary Anderson with Anderson Race Management. Um, she's just a, a quirky, funny lady, but also super organized and, mm-hmm. you know, it just has her hands in everything in that, in that market. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, is like a mom, I think she's like a race industry mom. Yeah. yeah I, I don't, I'm sorry to say, I don't know John, Mary, I know very well. And is an absolute right. badass. I adore her. Yeah. Yeah. She'd be fun to talk to. I think. Yeah. Well, listen, I hope this was um, worth your time. I really enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate your candor about your own background. Uh, I'm really fascinated in the combination of race directing and timing and everything else that that you guys do. I hope you'll come back again uh, at some point. And I just want to say thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's it's really fun to, to do this stuff. And I think it's a great, you know, I don't want to use the word project because it's, that makes it sound temporary, but like this goal you have of sort of like documenting history of the industry and sort of providing context of where it's been and where it's going is like, is really going to be important and helpful and be like a, Hey, intern, go listen to the chrono show first season. And then, <laughs> then we'll get you started on our job. <laughs> I, I hope, I hope so. Thanks for saying that. That I was telling um in the first one we did with, um, Dave McGillivray had episode one and I talked about the, uh, this conference I used to go to called the event director college, which would be a panel of all these legendary race directors and whether you wanted it or not, they would give you his, a lot of history in addition to the current events. And I had been in the industry for a couple of years before I ever went to that thing. And it was the first time I had ever really gotten the history. And so there's not much written history in this space. My, my theory is that, in 2021, a lot of things are going to have to be reborn. Even events that already exist will have to be reborn. And so reflecting on that history and taking lessons learned from that history and applying them as we go forward, I thought could be of of some use or hope would be of some use. And if nothing else, it's winter and people are going to be cold. And it's a great, it's a great opportunity to talk about racing with other people that love racing. So I'm hopeful that at, at the very least, it could be fun 
and hopefully um, there's actually some learnings to gain from it also, which you contributed to. Uh, well, yeah, happy to do it. And uh, yeah, let me know if you need an intro to, to John. Obviously, you know, Mary, that any other way I can help support the pod, let me know. You got it. Thank you very much, Steve. Talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, guys. Take Thanks. Care.